This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters. Lovely having your company here and we're going to talk about a few things today. Plans for a massive Wanaka film studio, how people can join together to buy their first home. We're going to look a little bit about bathroom renovations and what sort of costs can be involved in those and then a little bit of I guess, tenancy and landlord-related matters that can always serve as a word of warning in the section Bad Tenants, Bad Landlords. But first of all this week, we're straying away from talking about the market and just more about just a few things that are happening that are quite interesting or exciting. This article by Debbie Jameson talks about the curtain lifts and then falls on plans for a massive Wanaka film studio. Now, this article... Uh, was under stuff.co.nz business and industries. It's well worth a look at the architect's impression of the proposed Silverlight Studios film development near Wanaka. So this is going through the process of, uh, as it does, legal process of seeing if it can be can go ahead. The veil of secrecy has been thrown over the plans, though, for the massive film studio with comprehensive planning documents disappearing from a government website. What happened was the documents were put up with all of their details before it was realised, no, they needed to be redacted a bit of what's available to the public. Silverlight Studios applied to have the project fast-tracked through a resource consent process established by the government to nurture projects that could boost employment and post-COVID economic recovery. It's standard doc- practice for application documents to be uh, received under this process to be published once the application is deemed complete. And on Tuesday, the Environmental Protection Authority determined the film studio application was complete and could be considered by a panel. However, by Thursday, the EPA pulled all documents from its website despite the application progressing. So it's not that it's not progressing, they just put uh, too much information <laughs> out there publicly that they didn't really need to. So they were later replaced by heavily redacted versions of some documents, but many were still missing, including the resource consent application in 18 of 30 appendices. Environmental Protection Authority spokeswoman Michelle Ward said parts of the application were inadvertently published and removed once the EPA was notified by the applicant. We must consider what needs to be made public in order for anyone who will be invited to comment to have sufficient information on which to comment. So what's happening here? What's the general context of this? Well, efforts are being made to diversify Queenstown's economy post-COVID-19. We're reviewing our process for the publication of fast-track application documents, she said. Early reports of the application state the project's worth $280 million and includes recreations of Paris, Venice and New York and a medieval village. The Otago Daily Times reported buildings in the soundstage could be up to 17 metres tall while the city skylines would be up to 14 metres. 
A replica of New York Central Park, the world's most popular film location, would cover 50,000 square metres. So incredible to think that they would be looking at doing all of this. In the heavily redacted version of the resource consent, uh, Silverlight Studios says the project could deliver gross domestic product impacts of $1.7 billion to New Zealand, including close to $1 billion to Queenstown Lakes economy. It could create over 4,000 jobs in the first year and between 1,700 and 2,000 jobs annually up until year 11, it says. The directors of Silverlight Studios Limited are Mike Wallace, Ra Vincent and Jonathan Harding, all of whom have links to the film industry. Wallace is a former employee of Weta Digital, while production designer Vincent was nominated for Academy Awards for his work on the Hobbit trilogy and Jojo Rabbit. So the redacted resource consent application describes the project as a comprehensive self-sustaining film park that accommodates and provides for all aspects of film, making close proximity to some of New Zealand's most iconic and sought-after film locations. The 322-hectare site would be focused around an artificial lake and include sound stages, a film school, theatre, cafes, restaurants and conference facilities, the document says. It will be built over 10 years and designed to have an inclusive approach, inviting New Zealanders and international tourists into the magic of movie making. Really incredible um, in what they're looking at doing there. There could be some... Uh, negative economic effects though which would be an increase in housing demand which could increase increase house prices and rents uh, until that could stabilise over the long term. So that's just something that's interesting and if you do get the chance to look that up um, the like I say the artist's impression of how that would look is really quite impressive. Looking a little bit at another article here that says a Tiatatu Peninsula house sale more than doubles the RV with no developer in sight. So we're accustomed to seeing properties sell for millions over their RVs in the last few months, but always to developers. But it's more remarkable when it's not a million dollar uh, to start, multi-million dollar to start with and the sale is not to a developer. A three-bedroom, one-bathroom house in Spinnaker Drive, Tiatatu Peninsula, on 691 square metres, has just made the young owners in their 30s over $1 million in five and a half years. That is incredible. Listing agents Rosie and Daniel Deans of Harcourt say the house has just sold for $2.15 million, which is $1.1 million above the rating value. It was unbelievable, Rosie Dean says. We received an acceptable pre-auction offer of $1.8 million and bought the auction forward. The auction started at $1.8 million, Bidders battled it out in just six minutes. The bid skyrocketed 350000 to a winning bid of $2.15 million. The vendors were well over the moon, and one could imagine so. Imagine being in your 30s and suddenly having a million dollars in value and growth of the property. This is something there which illustrates the craziness of how this market can go. So what do you do when you're struggling to, to get uh, into a property? And this article here by Miriam Bell says, First home buyer joins forces with a friend to get on the property ladder. It says it's not common for a first home buyer to pick up a three-bedroom house in central Auckland suburb these days, but by joining forces with a friend, Stephanie Walker managed it. The arts and events creative producer had a $100,000 deposit for a house, but after seeing a mortgage broker, she was left discouraged, especially as she wanted to continue living in central Auckland. Her options as a single income earner seem limited to a shoebox apartment or a move to the outskirts of the region. 
But she discovered an old friend of hers was in a similar situation, so they decided to join forces and buy a house together. They spent nine months house hunting and attended many auctions, some for properties they wanted but which sold for more than they could afford. But two months ago, they found a house that appealed. While the converted warehouse of off Karangahapi Road in Auckland Central was different to what they had wanted, they liked the property and its location, they were the only bidder at the auction, and they got it right on the limit of what they could pay. Walker says it cost a million dollars, which means they have a mortgage of $800,000 between them, so they each owned 400000 She says it's much more manageable and reasonable than if we had to shoulder it all by ourselves, and the repayments are comparable to what we'd be paying for rent, so it works out well. They have a property agreement covering the purchase of the house and have talked through issues such as maintenance, decor and what happens if a partner arrives on the scene. So it's a great way to get into the market if you have a bit saved but you can't quite stretch the whole way by yourself or you do not want to make big compromises on the type or location of property you want to buy, Walker says. But you do need to have the same goals with the purchase. It was about getting on the property ladder for both of us. The key thing was we didn't want to keep paying money to a landlord. We wanted a place to live in of our own and that couldn't have happened for either of us if we hadn't bought with a friend. So these days making a joint purchase is not unusual for first home buyers she says. In fact the lawyer who did our property agreement recently bought her first home with her sister and that was the only way that they could do it. So anecdotally growing numbers of people are buying with family or friends as house prices rise and saving for a deposit gets harder and real estate agents confirm this is what they are observing too. I recently sold uh, my old Uh, personal family home and that was purchased by uh, two men who are in a similar situation where they couldn't buy individually so they got together and they have put their funds together in order to buy that property so it does really help. Another thing people in those situations can do is combine their KiwiSaver and first home grants to make up the deposit amount so um, just be aware that being in those sort of contracts, you want to make sure that you get good legal advice and do due diligence to make sure that everybody's going to benefit, uh, preferably equally. So just what's also important is even if you own a share of a property, you are liable for the entire mortgage. So for whatever reason, the other party can't keep up with the payments, they'll fall on the other owners. So, um, And that's... Can also another thing with this is keep in mind that your credit record is tied to your co-owners and could take a hit as a result of their finances. So you want to be very careful about uh, what you are doing there. However, it is a way of getting a foot in the door. Then one would imagine after a period of time uh, you could sell and take that lump out to then go your own ways and to buy a property from there. So, so fairly a fairly good way if you're otherwise very stuck and uh, really wanting to get onto the housing market. So we're going to have a little break now on Property Matters with a little bit of Bob Marley and the Whalers, Could You Be Love?
Listening to Property Matters here on NPR Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irarangi o Nga Tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. It's lovely having your company. We're just changing tack now. We're going to talk a little bit about bathroom renovations and what do I have to spend on a bathroom renovation? This question was posed by uh, Joanna Davis of stuff.co.nz. So recently uh, there were Design Excellent Awards uh, showcased for 2021 with the very best kitchens and bathrooms in New Zealand. But if you're at home and you've got a dated vanity unit, ugly lino from the 80s, yellowing plastic toilet seat, it could be time for a bathroom renovation. And with new hardware and plumbing to be upgraded, a bathroom reno is never going to be cheap. But it's usually worth doing, both for the pleasure of having a usable, beautiful space and also for resale value. Some estimates put the return on bathroom renovation spends at $1.50 to $2 for every dollar spent. So Joanna Davis asked some experts on what you should expect to pay. So Jeremy Gray from builderscrack.co.nz said bathrooms are relatively complex as an area of the home and show their age faster than other areas. People can spend anything from less than $10,000 to more than $50,000. Dave Giorgetti from Refresh, Refresh Renovations says that most full replacement renovations, that's a bath, shower, toilet, vanity, will cost between twenty dollars and $40,000. Some of our clients just want to update to bring up the standard of the home or increase its value or saleability. Some renovations are triggered by uh, necessity, uh, leaking showers or faulty fittings that are doing damage. George Eddy says he gets a lot of satisfaction from before and after comparisons and knowing the clients will have a more luxurious start and end to their day. So what should you focus on when renovating a bathroom? According to this article, the basics of adequate water pressure, lighting, heat and extraction need to be sorted first. Then there are some extras, but they can all add to the cost. Things like wall-hung or custom-made vanities, stone or marble vanity tops and basins, freestanding baths or, or soaker tubs, frameless glass showers with rain heads, non-standard colours of tapware, and mirrors with built-in LED lighting and demisters, and those things all add up. Might attend bathroom expert Krista McCauley says renovators need to factor in not just the cost of the products and materials, but also allow for tradespeople such as a plumber, electrician, tiler and building builder. She says if the bathroom layout is changing significantly, this will increase your plumbing complexity and time on the job. It's also more cost effective to replace fixtures in the same position as the original if possible. It is possible to get some lower price fittings from the big stores. Mitre 10 is a low cost range for those with a budget under $10,000, including a standard size shower for only $600 and a back to wall toilet for under $300. But she says if you have a bit more budget to play with, consider upgrading to a larger walk in shower with an overhead shower slider for a touch of luxury. It's always good to start planning your renovation around the shower with a popular glass. 1,200 by 900 metre showers allowing for a very comfortable showering experience. Another thing, a wall-hung vanity can actually open up the room and offer the illusion of more space, making a smaller bathroom feel bigger. 
Of course, just be careful to check the local council before starting any bathroom renovation to understand if building consent is required. So what to expect for your budget? What they've done here is they've given some price guides and what may happen. So under $10,000, Gray says with a small budget, repainting, relining or refreshing an existing bathroom will be possible or use budget materials and fittings to make minor upgrades. So he recommends the following options depending on what the budget allowed. Repaint the walls, replace the cabinet doors, replace handles and tapware, replace the acrylic shower box, install a new type of blind or shade, replace damaged or outdated fixtures and fittings, replace the toilet and the vanity, and you could do that under $10,000, which would be a great option for modernising something like a rental investment property. In the 10000 to 20000 bracket, he says that homeowners can swap the older models for newer updated versions and benefit from using quality materials. So typically most of these tasks will be undertaken in combination with tasks from the previous price bracket. So you could, going up a level, you could retile, you can install a custom bench top or wall mount double vanity sink, strip back to the frame and reline and rewaterproof, repair floor damage from leaking plumbing if needed, relay and recover the floor, install a tiled shower and improve the lighting. Then up to the 20000 to 50000 mark, he says that's where you can start to move plumbing and rework the space structurally. So, that's, so reconfigure the home layout maybe, adding an ensuite that could include complex renovations including moving plumbing, adding toilets or larger bathroom spaces and higher spec fit-outs. That's in that 20000 to 50000 range. Now what do you get in the 50000 plus? Grace says renovations above 50000 give a homeowner full creative licence over the functionality, look and feel. Typically a higher price buys more complexity for standard spec fit-outs or higher spec fit-outs for standard bathrooms. So it can include things like complex reconfigurations, for example as part of a larger alteration, high quality custom fixtures, granite or solid wood bench tops, custom-built vanities, contemporary tiling and mosaics, and a freestanding bathtub. So that article's really handy, I think, if you're looking at what you can do in a particular property. And like I say, that's available on stuff around uh, what you can do in those bathroom areas. So moving on to bad landlords, bad tenants. We're going to look at uh, this article, which says extraordinarily patient tenant gets $5,000 compensation for years of leaks. So a tenant who dealt with multiple leaks in his home over many years has been awarded more than $5,000 in compensation. The tenant, whose name is suppressed, took his complaints about the Military Road Northland Wellington property to Tenancy Tribunal. He became the sole tenant of the Tenancy Agreement in 2013 and lived with flatmates. The tenancy ended on May 4th last year and the tenant sought compensation from property managers Vesta Property Management for leaks, mould on the exterior of the property, inadequate heating and borer. Tenancy Tribunal adjudicator Kay Sterling said there had been a long history of complaints about the property back to 2014. One of the most concerned is reoccurring roof leaks in various rooms in the house. The tenant has over the years represented those living at the premises in raising the outstanding issues of the, with Vesta. He presented a large volume of evidence at the hearings, including copies of numerous emails and 14-day notices sent to Vesta advising of maintenance issues and requesting repairs over the years. It is apparent from the evidence that Vesta has frequently been slow and in some instances failed to respond to maintenance issues raised adequately. Sterling said she had noted earlier that the tenant had been extraordinarily patient and accommodating given the landlord's glacial response. It's very apparent that the tenant's patient is beyond what could be reasonably expected in the circumstances. 
Some claims couldn't be pursued because they were too old, but Sterling said she could consider anything that happened after March 11th, 2015. The most serious of the problems in the property were leaks in the kitchen, and she said it was a recurring problem of rainwater leaking through a skylight through much of 2015-2016. So it goes on a bit from there, but really um, the tenant ended up being compensated, $4,000 compensation for leaks, $500 for failure to maintain the external weatherboards, $500 for bore issues, and $600 for failure to provide heating. So you've really got to act on things as a landlord as they come up and just stop things from becoming larger problems because then you've got not only the expense of putting it right but the compensation and so forth that a tenant can seek for the amount of time that it's taken. Speaking of time, this recent advertisement has caused a little bit of controversy. $400 Wellington property listing demands flatmate leaves the house for six hours a day. So a 400 per week flat share in Wellington is being described as awful by renting advocates as existing flatmate won't allow any potential roommate to be there during the daylight hours. The listing for the 22 square metre bedroom at the top of Cuba Street strictly specifies any flatmate would be a matured professional who is almost never home. I use this space for my personal purposes only during the day between 9am and 3pm, Monday to Friday, and that needs to be remain exclusively for my use. A flatmate would also never touch a desk in the bedroom as this is for existing flatmates use only. The ad says, I'm in my 50s, have my own business, I act my age and expect others to do the same. And on top of the $400 price tag for the one room, the laundry in the building is coin operated. So Renters United spokesperson Geordie Rogers says the listing is awful. It does demonstrate how bad the situation has gotten. It's not just a housing crisis but a human rights crisis. On the surface it looks like a decent home but it's nowhere near that. Steve Watson, the National Manager of Tenancy Compliance and Investigations for Tenancy Services, told NewsHub the situation is not against the law. On first look at the advertisement online, it looks like this is for a flatmate rather than a tenant, so it wouldn't be covered by the Residential Tenancies Act. The Residential Tenancies Act only covers tenants and landlords, not flatmates. Rogers says this gap in the Act is part of the problem. We've been lobbying to the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment to get these people in these situations the same protections renters do. We do not see a lot of these situations coming up. A spokesperson for Tenancy Services told NewsHub that MB is not responsible for drafting policy around housing. The Ministry of Housing and Urban Development works with central and local government agencies to draft legal policies relating to tenancy. Tenancy Services has a duty to regulate the law and inform and educate the public on their rights as tenants and landlords, but doesn't write tenancy policy. So it's pretty amazing that um, this person, the landlord, wants free office space (laughs) during that time of day and then is renting it out for accommodation otherwise. So it's just just pretty amazing what people do. Um, The... I'm not sure. Good luck to them. We'll see, see how that goes. But it's interesting in that it's not illegal to um, to do so and to rent that property out effectively part-time. This article here um, is about a modified 28-bedroom boarding house that was destroyed by fire and it lacked smoke alarms. So a boarding house destroyed by fire had been modified to sleep 28 people, had kitchen appliances and a wardrobe, and had inadequate smoke alarms. A Fire and Emergency New Zealand investigation found that there were 11 people living in a Queenstown house when a fire took hold in September of last year. The Huff Street residents had been modified to sleep at least 28 people across four units. 
According to the report, one unit had smoke, one smoke, had, sorry, had no smoke alarm, another had a smoke alarm that was not operational. As a result of these findings, a notification has been sent to the Ministry of Building, Innovation and Employment. So their manager of tenancy compliance investigation, Steve Watson, confirmed the investigation is happening but declined to give further details. In the report, the author Marty Gilling said he could not identify the cause of the fire but it may have been started by a discarded cigarette on an outdoor couch on an upstairs deck. No one was injured in the fire but some of the tenants lost all their possessions. The landlord, Conrad Goodger, is widely known for operating boarding house-style rentals in Queenstown which can be leased by the bed. He describes himself on LinkedIn as a self employed at Queenstown Flats, a budget accommodation business for medium and long-term visitors to Queenstown. Goodger was not aware of the ongoing investigation when stuff got hold of him on Monday, but said officials had visited and spoken to him after the fire. He declined to comment whether they discussed other Queenstown houses that he owned or leased, as it was unrelated. His units units were really fully occupied, even prior to COVID-19, he said. He added that the unit that didn't have a smoke alarm was unoccupied at the time. So it's quite interesting to see what will what will happen there and, um, and certainly uh, whether that is investigated. The perspective from the tenant, a tenant, Andy Smith, who lost everything in the September fire, told staff at the time that the block of units was a matchbox ready to go up in the flat he lived in, I won't say what the language is, but he did not like it, with the walls falling apart, he said. And at that time, Goodger had said the walls were in top shape and any hazards had been left by the tenants. The heavily redacted fire investigation report, which was released under the Official Information Act, shows the modified layout of the blocks of the unit. The first flat had six bedrooms, two that had been divided off the kitchen lounge area, and two bathrooms, one of which was a converted laundry. One bedroom was only wide enough to fit a single bed and a bedside table. A flat screen television took up an entire wall and within the wardrobe was a refrigerator, a slow cooker and an electric jug. In a different bedroom, a crock pot and a toaster were located on a bedside table. The second flat also had beds for 11 people across five bedrooms and included four that had been created from two bedrooms, one that had been sliced off from the kitchen lounge area and a second bathroom that was converted from a laundry. Access, uh, sorry, across all of the units there are rooms with bunk beds and rooms with single beds and a queen or double bed mezzanine. Uh, Andy Smith, who they're talking about, credited Goodger with saving his life. Goodger, his partner and 10-year-old son were living in a sleep out beside the property when the fire took hold. Goodger went to the toilet about 2am and noticed the couch on the deck was on fire, ran into the unit, woke Smith and, um, and they managed to escape from there. So we'll have to see what happens here. Watch the space. I might bring that to you in another show as to how that investigation goes. But that's actually all we've got time for this week on Property Matters. It's gone by in a flash. Lovely having your company here on mpr.nz where you can also find some of the historic shows and also where all good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.